Hey guys, welcome to the Let's Get To It podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Hamilton, and I'm so glad you're here. We are going to talk to people from all different walks of life about faith, family, and friendship. All right, let's get to it. Hey guys, welcome to today's episode. My guest today is Kat Armstrong, author of The In-Between Place and co-founder of The Polish Network. I have to admit, I completely geeked out talking to Kat. I love her book and really admire her passion and ministry. Plus, we share a love of the West Wing, which is basically the foundation for every good friendship. So today, Kat shares her book and the story of her own in-between place, losing her father to suicide. Kat discusses how using imaginative prayer and bringing Jesus into that situation gave her comfort and hope, and how we can do the same. Kat also talks to us about the woman at the well in John 4 and her in-between place. Kat points out how Jesus sits with us in hard places, desires to hear our story and acknowledges our trauma, entrusts us with truth, and empowers women to proclaim the good news of God's redemption. All right, guys, let's get to it. I want to welcome to the show today my friend, my new friend, Kat Armstrong. Thank you so much for being here. Kelly, I'm so excited. I can't wait to talk all things West Wing and theology. Let's do yes, it. All things West Wing. First of all, my dream is to be CJ Craig. Yes. And I'll even do the pantsuits, but like <laughs> <laughs> to have her wit and her intelligence and her timing, like. Where are the CJ Craigs today? We in in media, we need her. We need I, her. I jokingly will tell people that to understand me is to understand CJ Craig's soliloquy from um, Women of Qumran episode, where she yes. just cannot, she cannot um, wrap her head around the injustices towards women. I'm like, I just really. So hopefully, my friend here will not hear this yet, okay. because I just bought her a West Wing CJ. She got a big promotion at work, big, big, oh, awesome. big in ministry. And I went to the internet and found a CJ Craig like a little notebook. <laughs> that is awesome. Got it in the mail. But yes, I'm a huge. My husband is so tired of West Wing, but I could watch. I, I t- say this is like cleansing my palate. Okay. This is like yes. a timeline cleanse, a brain yes. cleanse. I just want to end with a couple episodes of West Wing before I go to bed. Absolutely. And then I'm like, oh, just one more. And I've probably watched it through like at least four or five times. Like, yes, but the um, the women of Kumar and actually that is I've heard that is actually Allison Janney's favorite episode. Really? Yes. I did not know that. So, I mean, it's like your kindred spirits with yeah. her. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. So and you guys are in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, how long have are you from Dallas? Well, I'm from Houston, so I'm okay. a very proud Houstonian, born and yeah. raised. Um, but Aaron and I have been married for 18 years, and we've lived in Dallas for 17 years. So okay. Dallas feels more like home than anything. And my yeah. mom lives with us now, and so you know, the only time we're going to Houston is to visit his parents. So this really right. feels like home. Home. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Um, so we lived in Fort Worth for thir- uh, 13 years. So what are your favorite eating spots in Dallas? Oh, my favorite. Oh, the Heritage Table. It's yep. up in Frisco and it. our friend Rich owns it. I mean, it's literally the best food I've ever tasted in my whole life. And I say that every time he recreates the menu, yeah. it's a scratch kitchen and you got to go check it out. The Heritage Table when you're here. Um, I'm Love Me La Hacienda. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. And I'll tell you a story. We just, my husband and I have been vaccinated and we went to La Hacienda last night to enjoy their margaritas and fajitas, but they serve this apple pie and they finally, it's been a year since they've had it. We've been ordering to go for a year because of the pandemic. And last night was the first time in a whole year that we had our apple pie. (laughs) You're like, so so good. good. So those are probably my two favorite. Yeah. Are you, so my favorite place to get coffee there in Dallas is actually Cafe Brazil. I don't know if you are a big breakfast person, but like the, like the 15 options of coffee. I do. I really do miss like the Tex-Mex. We're in Louisville now. I love Louisville. Louisville's home, but oh my goodness, the food. I miss the food. (laughs) I kind of just want to come back to Texas and tour the best places. I don't know how people move on in life without breakfast tacos and migas and um, a real margarita and queso. And I don't know. I don't, I don't think I can move away from the Tex-Mex only if the Lord really, 
God has to call you out of Texas. It's awesome. Well, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Congratulations on your new book, The In-Between Place. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. Yeah. So I know it's probably different um, doing the promotions during a pandemic. Um, So... (laughs) But, you know, I think you're rocking it. Every, it's getting out there. And so congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, we we um, the book was written before the pandemic. And so I went back in the editing process and added some information about how I was processing the pandemic. But no one could have imagined that the book would launch 24 hours before the insurrection and right after a really contentious, you know, political season, and then a couple weeks before the snowmageddon here in Texas. So Kelly, it's been wild launching the book, but at the end of the day, you know, it's a stewardship issue. You know, I I think the Lord really laid this message on my heart. I'm confident that it can help a lot of people look at the word of God again and to see redemption in their stories and be encouraged, filled with hope. So that's what I am praying and hoping that in yeah. as I steward this message of the in-between place, which I think we're all kind of in right now, that we would be filled with hope. So that's really yeah. my prayer. Yeah. Well, it's definitely chalked full of hope, of theology, of um, connection with God and others. You hit so many topics, but tell us a little bit about the book um, and then tell us kind of who did you write this for? Who was in your mind? I wrote this for everyone listening. I really believe that we are all in an in-between place. And what I mean by that is sometimes I jokingly call it Stuckville. And it may not, your your whole life may not feel like you're in Stuckville, but in one particular issue, a relationship, a career decision, something going on with your kids, something going on at church, something going on in your faith, something going on emotionally in you, where we feel like that liminal space of, I know where I want to be or go or where I'm supposed to be. I think I know what God's saying. I think they'll know the direction of my life, but here I am kind of waiting on, waiting on God, waiting on myself, waiting to have a courage to step, move forward. And then I also think I wrote the book for people who feel less cheerful about the future and feel like not only am I in Stuckville, but I lack the hope I need to keep moving forward. I feel like, yeah. I, how did I get here? How am I ever going to get out of there? And you mentioned theology a couple of times, Kelly. I mean, I think theologically speaking, you and I are living between the cross excuse me, between the resurrection and Christ's second coming. And so in a sense, theologically speaking, we're all in an in-between place, trying to figure out what is life post the resurrection, but before our hope is completely realized in his second coming, life can be really challenging. And so I was in Israel on a trip to the Holy Land with a small group of women to study women in the Bible. And we stepped off an armored van really close to Gaza where bombs were going off on a Mother's Day. And we stood overlooking the most beautiful part of the world I've seen yet. And it was modern day Samaria. And I remember Mm. this moment. That was the moment the book was born. This book, The In-Between Place, because the um, tour guide that day stood up and said, we're standing in modern day Samaria. Mm -hmm. This is where the woman at the well story happened. And then our Bible teacher that day, Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, got up and she she did a beautiful sermon on Dinah from Genesis 34. And I remember going, wait, time out. I got on the tour bus and started taking copious notes. And I wrote an arrow going, Dinah and the woman at the well. Both of these women, their stories had a geographical marker. It was the same place. So when I started to look, you know, Dinah's story happened in Shechem, which is renamed Sikar in the New Testament. That's where her... Anyway, people are listening going, why do I care about Bible geography right now? I didn't care. That's the point. Right. This book was born uh, knowing that Samaria was an in-between place Yeah. in the scriptures geographically. But I think metaphorically speaking, it represents where a lot of us find ourselves. We're yeah in between a rock and a hard place in life. And we need to know that God's going to show up in a place in our life where things haven't gone as planned. Yeah. I think that's so good. And honestly, I never connected John 4 and Genesis 34, never connected those stories. And so when you did that, it was also an affirmation to me of like, God's in the business of connection and connecting stories And even when we feel disconnected or stuck in between, God's character is to meet us there and to make the connection to him, to others, and then the connection to our next part of our story and our journey. And we've seen that time and time again. 
I think he shows us through the scriptures how he can redeem everything. Like yeah. we know that that's a part of our story as Christians, but I'm saying he can redeem geography and time and space and lack and concern. He can redeem even that. And I think he redeems this place in the Bible that yeah. metaphorically speaking can represent a place in our own lives that we yeah. need redemption, that we feel like isn't possible. And it is. Yeah. I think that's so good. That's fantastic. Um, you know, you really start the book um, very vulnerable, very vulnerable with the story of your dad um, and that being, you know, a very in-between place in your life. Um, can you talk to us a little bit and tell us about your dad? Yes. I love my daddy. <laughs> I miss him a lot. Mm-hmm. Um Ronald Kent Obenhouse was his name, and he was a very loving father, very present, always encouraging me. Um, My father struggled with a lifetime of substance abuse and mental health issues that were left untreated. I think he was a part of a generation, and I'm not blaming it on his generation or his age. I think it had a part to play in a real resistance to vulnerability and sharing with people in our life, what's really going on. It's in the dark places and where we need help. And he um, never sought, you know, licensed professional counseling or medication, things that I have utilized in my own life to help with mental health issues. And um, so I saw him struggle very deeply. And a few years before Uh, he passed. He had a really tragic back injury that left him unable to work and sleep and and stand. Mm. He was just in in really high level pain every day. And I think it stole his will to live. He on multiple occasions would talk about suicidal ideation Mm -hmm. and, you know, ultimately he passed from wounds he inflicted on himself in a suicide attempt. And so Mm -hmm. I do consider his passing death by suicide um, because although he was in the ICU for two weeks after um, his attempted suicide, those, the injuries he inflicted on himself did take his life. Um, So when I showed up in Israel one year later, I was, first anniversary of my dad's passing. So imagine me stepping off that bus again in modern day Samaria and learning of the connection points between two women who had suffered greatly and Jesus had redeemed their story by hundreds of years and lots of time and space, but he had done it. And I needed my story to be redeemed. I was in the middle of grieving my father's death. You you don't get over those type of things. A piece of me will always be missing. Yeah. Um, I think very seriously now about matters of mental health and and um, suicidal ideation and the conversations we need to be having in the church and in yes. women's ministry and with each other. And I take those really seriously now, but I was the in the in-between place in the grief process when your life seems to have stopped. Mm-hmm. I'm getting emotional thinking about this. And it seems like everybody else is just like zooming right, right. forward. This happens in any type of loss that we experience. You look around and you're like, people are just carrying on, you know, like life is going on, going to work and eating their food and accelerating vacations. And I'm thinking about how is this even possible that we're planning his funeral? Like, how is this possible? And so a year later, I was still feeling like a real in-between place. When, when will this hurt less? Right. Yeah. Well, I loved hearing about your dad. I loved reading your story and and I am so sorry for your loss. And I know that, like you said, that's not something you get over. I think Mm -hmm. the trauma um, that you experienced, I'm glad to hear that you're seeking, that you have sought professional help, that you are having these conversations. I think it's absolutely beautiful. Um, One of the things that I noticed in your book is, you know, scripture, like, you know, scripture, <laughs> I obviously, <laughs> I know, which is fantastic. And obviously your faith is extremely firm. And so I think it reiterated and debunked the, the myth that, well, if you're a strong enough Christian and if your faith is strong enough, you will not struggle with mental health. And that's not the, mm-hmm. that's not the case. Amen. Um, it is not the case. You know, our brains are indeed an organ and sometimes those organs need assistance just like any other place in our body. And so I thought it was so, I just thought it was so impactful um, 
for the readers in your book. Mm -hmm. For sure. Thank you for saying that. I mean, not to overuse the book title, but you know, our brains are in an in-between place. Okay. So we are fallen people and sin has impacted every part of our world, even our bodies. And he's coming to redeem that there's coming a day when our mental health issues will be put to rest and our whole, even our bodies and our brains will be remade and restored. And, you know, we, we need the hope to carry on today. And that's what I hope people will find in the book and in John chapter four and the woman at the well story, but there's hope for today when we're still in the in-between place that it's not time to call it quits. Yeah. You talk a lot about, about using imaginative prayer, which I think is, is a, is inviting hope into the story because you're inviting Jesus into that story. Can you tell us a little bit about what is imaginative prayer and how did you utilize it during this in-between time, especially during your last visit to see your dad? That is such a good way to put it, Kelly, inviting hope into your story. Is that how you said it? Yeah. Yeah. That was good. That was good. It was a <laughs> mic drop moment. I don't nice. that down. <laughs> You know, imaginative prayer is a spiritual discipline people have been doing for thousands of years since Jesus's resurrection. And we see it before the Protestant Reformation. We see it in Catholicism. We see after the Protestant Reformation, a repurposing of that spiritual discipline to align with um, new theology. And we, and we see it now. It shows up in all sorts of different strains of Christianity. And so sometimes it's practiced differently. I, for one utilize imaginative prayer after I've done all my research and studied the commentaries and know how to make that hermeneutical spiral, meaning knowing how to apply what I read that was written with an intent for the original audience and how to apply it correctly to my life. Now under the authority of the Holy spirit, all of that work, I'm assuming, you know, you need to assume that's what's happening in my life. Additionally, I can use imaginative prayer that takes something I've studied really a lot in the New Testament, specifically in the Gospels, and help me develop a relationship with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I do find hope when we invite him into a real-time situation. And you br- bring up something I talked about in the very last chapter of the book, um, that on my last visit to see my dad by myself, I had trouble actually going in the room. I had all of these, you know grand ideas that I was going to go in there and quote scripture and I was going to pray. And, um, I ended up just holding the hand of the nurse in the hallway and just peering into his window and feeling like I could not go into this in-between place. Cause I felt like we were in between his life and his death. I felt like, what if he woke up? Would he choose life? Would he not like, what is going to happen? I felt so in between. I just want to get out of the situation. And I remember finally going in to the room. I had my Bible with me and I turned open to John 14. I found such great comfort in this section of scripture when Jesus is talking in the upper room to his disciples right before his crucifixion. It's like his really, he holds all these important words, like his parting words to them. And in it, he says not to be afraid. Mm-hmm. And I remember imagining that Jesus opened the door for me to walk into that room Did he? I don't know, but I imagined that Jesus was there with me. I know that he was with me. And I then I imagined him holding hands with my dad and holding hands with me who was sitting on a couch and being that being the person in between us that was gonna work things out in our relationship, the new heaven and new earth, the pain I was going through, the pain he was going through. I imagined that. You know, do I did I feel my hand written? No, it just I just could picture that in my brain. And it brought me such comfort to imagine the king of the world and the healer of all to take a moment and be with me and my dad in a very, very meaningful moment, right? And bringing me peace through a verse he had said to a different group of people with a different intent that I could apply in my situation and go, you know what? I don't have to be afraid. He's here with me. Um, He's not going to leave me. And even though I felt like my dad was leaving me and had chosen to leave, Jesus was going to stay. And I even had this moment, Kelly, where the nurse came in and she said she needed to change his sheets, which could have meant that it would, uh, you know, it was a very intimate moment in my dad's not conscious. And so I stepped out of the room and I remember crying again in the hall and and imagining Jesus would stay 
with my dad. He could handle that my dad was going to be maneuvered and his gown would be shifted and his, you know, a very intimate moment between this nurse and my dad, unconscious dad, that Jesus could handle that. Yeah. And imagining Jesus present, wow, it brought a lot of healing and a lot of hope. And I think this is what we see Jesus do in the scriptures over and over and over, and specifically in the woman at the well story. I and mean, he goes into like a do not enter zone, if you will. Right. That's what he did in my hospital room for my dad. That yeah. ICU room was like my do not enter zone. This is the most in-between place I ever want to be. Get me out of here. And he came in and he, and he sat with me and he does that with the woman at the well too. Yeah. It's really beautiful. And it honestly kind of bring, makes me, makes me cheered just how powerful that is. And I think it's a reminder that, you know, we do have Jesus and the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, that dwells among us. And it really kind of made um, the verse in Romans where it says, when we do not know how to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalfs with groanings. And I've always pictured that verse as something kind of far away, like the Holy Spirit in heaven, kind of looking down. And when you talked about this practice of imaginative prayer, it was like, oh, wait, no, the Holy Spirit is literally, Jesus is literally among us and in us and in those spaces to know exactly how to pray and petition the father. And it made it so real and practical. Um, yeah. The, the imaginative prayer, you know, if someone wanted to learn more about that or figure out how to do it, how to practice it, why it would help you, you know, go to a gospel, mm-hmm. find some red letters, find words that Jesus himself said to a group of people, understand what he meant, do the study, but then take a moment to quiet yourself, to quiet your spirit, to maybe even close your eyes and to focus in on what you just read and reread out loud the words that Jesus said. But now imagine them saying those words to you. Yeah. And what does, how does that, what does that bring out in you? What do you learn more about God? How does it make you connect with him? You start pondering those things. That's good. And something like John 14 saying, do not be afraid. All of a sudden I hear him saying that to me. Yeah. I'm like, I don't need to be afraid. Right. <laughs> Even on this podcast, if I feel nervous or whatever, he's right here with me. Yeah. And so I think the way that that really helps us, Kelly, is it just what you said from Romans, it brings Jesus into our situation. He's already here. Right. It's almost like just acknowledging that he's here. Exactly. It's the acknowledgement that hope remains present. We just kind of have to turn to it and look at it. Yeah. Mm, it's really so good. good. It's really good. Um, I promise we are going to get to the woman <laughs> at the well. Oh, I yeah. want to speak about one more kind of in-between place that you've experienced. Um, and you talk a lot about uh, your time at seminary. Um, full disclosure, I, I went to seminary. I finished my degree at Texas Christian University. Um, I started, but only lasted one semester at a Southern Baptist seminary and share a lot of the same experiences um, that you experienced, but I would really like to know, um, how did seminary, the experiences that you encountered, which you can talk to us, talk to us about influence your ministry today and specifically your theology of, of women. Mm. Ooh, Kelly, it's a whole thing. Isn't That's a it? whole book. <laughs> you can well, it, it, it's, it's my first book. Exactly. Okay, so yes. My very first book, No More Holding Back, Emboldening yep. Women to Be All In for Jesus. That is that is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I write chapter after chapter of why women hold back from loving God with their all, their heart, yeah. their soul, their mind, and strength. And it's because of a moment I had in a seminary class at Dallas Theological Seminary. And I want to, I want to preface, I hope we have enough time for this. I need Absolutely. to, if we're going to include this in the show. Absolutely. I want to. I want everyone to know I spent eight years at Dallas Seminary getting a two-year degree, and overwhelmingly, my experience was positive and encouraging. Yep. I will tell you the top three men allies in my life are complementarian men that serve that organization, and I love, they are the ones that have catalyzed me into ministry. They're the reason I stayed. They're the reason the Polish Network exists. They're the reason I'm writing books. Yep. And there's, but there's usually a very loud minority, sure, right, that um, may disagree with the overwhelming. And so I want that to be really clear that I do not have a bone to pick. I don't have a, 
I don't have any, any of that going on. Absolutely. I had a very significant situations happened where I, I experienced gender bias to the nth degree. Yeah. Um, because I was a woman, I was considered a threat to the institution of marriage, to the local church. Um, I was not welcome in spaces, although the seminary is very clear on where, how they stand and welcome and encourage women. But unfortunately, I have those experiences. And what they did for me, Kelly, was catalyze me. They they made me go back to the scriptures and look again at the women in the Bible yeah. and how women in the Bible should frame my understanding of how God wants to use women. Yeah. Um, instead of one particular verse and one particular book, um, instead, I look at the whole of scripture yeah. and how God used women and use that to frame how he may want to use my gifts, my talents. And I think women should be all in for Jesus. But I had um, a, a person in class yell at me. I, I had a admitted that I was scared to learn too much about Jesus because I was a woman. And he said, you should stop. Stop it. Stop learning. You're a threat to the church. You're a threat to the marriage. And I work through that because here's the thing, Kelly, he and I actually shared the same viewpoint. Everybody wants to hear that story and go, who is this guy? Like, let me take off my earrings and defend your honor. I'm like, sister friend, he's actually not the point of the story. He and I, he and I saw, thought the same thing. Mm. It's just the way he said it was so gross yeah. that all of us go, oh, no, ooh. Don't say that. That's actually what I thought. I thought it, I thought women became dangerous when they learned too much about Jesus. And what we see in the scriptures is totally different. And what I talk about in the in-between place is how Jesus has one of the longest recorded conversations in John and in the whole New Testament with this nameless woman at the well in John 4. And in doing so, he crosses gender boundaries, ethnic boundaries, socioeconomic boundaries, class boundaries. Like he, he does what Galatians 3.28 says, yeah. that Jesus' new family upends classism, sexism, and racism, right. right? Jesus embodies that when he comes and talks to the Samaritan woman. And culturally speaking, this was so countercultural for a Jewish man to, to even be go, go through Samaria. Right. But then to make a stop and to have a, a conversation alone right. with a Samaritan woman, and then even to suggest sharing utensils with her. I mean, this is like the biggest no-no in the whole world. You don't talk theology with right. women. You don't commission women to share their faith. And all of this happens in John chapter four. Yeah. Um, and so I was like reading, I was processing my stories at the seminary through Jesus's radical inclusion of women yeah. in his kingdom and the way that he that the woman at the well is the first, very first evangelist yes. in the scriptures. And she's so successful at sharing her faith with her city. And so anytime I sense God calling me to share my faith with others, I should look to this example. Yeah. As opposed to some of the, you know, really yucky right. stuff that happened to me in seminary. Yeah. And I think it's good to acknowledge. And I love that you said that you both had the same view that when women learn too much about Jesus, you become dangerous. And I would say, absolutely. But I would wonder, because I'm not going to answer for you, if your definition of dangerous now is very different. Because, yeah, we do become dangerous in the sense of we are all in. And mm -hmm. in Scripture, yeah, they do become really dangerous, influential mm -hmm. warriors sold out mm -hmm. to spread the good news. They are dangerous mm -hmm. judges and prophetesses and mm -hmm. leaders and apostles and evangelists and Church disciples. A hundred percent. And so it's like, preachers. yeah, women get motivated. <laughs> yeah. They're going to be all in. Um, mm -hmm. And so yep. I think that's beautiful. I really, I think I appreciate you including that one, it gives voice to women that do not feel like they can speak about their experiences. Um, mm -hmm. And then it's in spite of that experience, keep moving, keep doing it. Keep uh, I mean, this is, yeah, you just summarized no more holding back my first book. I mean, in the book, I say this, and if you, you don't buy it, which I want you to buy it and buy 10 copies and share it with your church. <laughs> but if you don't here, here's the crux of that message. The great commandment says to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And somewhere along the way, Kelly, it was in seminary. I started to make loving God with our heart and soul, women's work mm. and mind and strength, men's work. Yeah. I had gendered the greatest commandment. Isn't that crazy? And instead what Jesus wants from us, he wants us to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And women who love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, they are not a threat to the institution of marriage or the church. They are a threat to egos. Yes. They're a threat to power structures and we become a threat to the enemy. A hundred percent. 
Absolutely. I mm-hmm. think you are so right. And I think the woman at the we well do- kind of um, is a springboard to that. Yeah. And we don't, yeah. And I think like, it's important to say, Kelly, like we don't become dangerous just to be dangerous. We don't be all in for Jesus to make up for some maybe gross gender bias we've experienced. We do it because we love Jesus and we just want to serve him. Yes, We want to serve him. You want to live out the mission that God has called you to do in bringing the good news to others. Um, Let's talk a little bit more about John four, the woman at the well. You um, take a long time to talk to us about Shechem and Mm. You know, tell us why is it important to know the story behind the story of John 4? So the woman at the well encounters Jesus in a place called Sychar in the New Testament, which was another name for Shechem. It's the same place. And what's important, Kelly, is that, you know, we started this episode talking about Fort Worth and Dallas and food and Cafe Brazil and the coffee you like there. And anyone who lives in the DFW area, they all know what Cafe Brazil is. They all know there's 15 options for coffee. That's where everybody meets for breakfast, you guys here in Texas. So you have to be a Texan to understand that story. But if you're a Texan that doesn't understand that story, you've missed it. In the same way, the woman at the well, she knew the backstory of her own city. Yeah, She knew how women had been treated in her city and that there was a long history of evil reigning in Shechem, the place Jesus goes off the beaten path and chooses to go and have this conversation with her. And so his presence undoes some of the gross and evil things that have been done in Shechem. So let's talk about that. The first time Shechem shows up, I think it's in Genesis 12 and God is communing with Abraham. So Shechem should be a place where the presence of God is welcome and celebrated and there's communion happening, right? Where we get to conversate with God, to talk with God. Just a couple chapters later, Dinah's story happened. Dinah in Genesis 34, she is raped Mm -hmm. by a man named Shechem in a place called Shechem. And she is married to her predator. The deal is made with her father, Jacob, and Shechem's dad, not to so that they wouldn't upset the power structures in the legal system and property management and all sorts of other things. She is disposed of really after she's been traumatized, and the, you never hear her in the story. Um, it ends in mass murder. Her brothers avenge her rape, kill everybody. More women are victimized because of it. And the chapter closes and you're like, this is the most depressing chapter in all of the Bible. And so that's what, what, what happens in Shechem is it's supposed to be a place where we commune with God and enjoy his presence. And instead it becomes a place where women are raped and men are silent about their abuse. And then we see it's where Joseph is sold into slavery. So Shechem is now a place where the slave trade starts and human trafficking starts and where family members turn on each other and murderous threats. Right. I mean, it's a bad place. By the time we get to Judges and First and Second Kings, we've got King Abimelech, the most evil king in all right. of scripture. Dude was crazy. Yes. Um, just bloodthirsty, lording over his power, uh, breathing like breathing in murder and breathing out murder. The king of Bemelik is coronated in Shechem. Mm. So now it's like, it's not just a place where bad things happen. It's where people elevate people to power that they know will abuse it. Yeah, It gets perpetuated. And then we get to Rehoboam, who's also really bad king. And so we've got all this back history. I mean, Shechem is where people were buried in cisterns in the book of Jeremiah. It's just a Bad, like this is where bad stuff happens. Yeah. You don't go there. You want to live there. It's the most in-between place. You want to get out of there. Right. That's where the woman at the well lives hundreds of years later mm-hmm. by a well. And Jesus goes there and Jesus's presence basically communicates. I, I'm not going to tolerate evil. Like I'm here to undo abuse towards women, abuse towards people, murder, evil, power that abuses power, mm-hmm. um, death. I am here. Jesus is there to undo all of it. And I think the woman at the well is literary redemption for Dinah. Yeah. So Dinah heard she's silent. She's victimized. Uh, should we never hear from her again? Her chapter ends with death 
But in the woman at the well story, she's this long conversation with the savior of the world. He entrusts her with all theological truths. She, people in her city get saved. Right. I mean, there's so much there that it's like Jesus isn't just redeeming the woman at the well story and potentially ours. He's redeeming Shechem. Like if he can do this with that kind of place, imagine what he can do in our lives. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And I also love how you point out that Jesus responds to the woman at the well's trauma completely opposite how Jacob responds to his daughters. And I want to read a quote from your book because it's really beautiful. Um, Uh (laughs) No, it's really, really good. Um, You say a sober minded reading of, of his reaction, Jacob's reaction to his daughter's rape shows him complicit in her trauma and a co conspirator in her demise. We have no record of him talking to his daughter about her most painful moment. Jesus, on the other hand, he wanted her to tell it, meaning her story. He listened. He cared, allowing her own voice to speak her truth. Jesus engaged her in one of the longest continuous narratives in the book of John. And later, I love this part. You say, Jesus never suffers compassion fatigue from grieving with you. Mm. So good. Let's go, let's go first to the woman at the well story. And Lynn, let's talk a little bit about how Jesus interacts in a beautiful way to um, love her basically through trauma. So talk to me about who exactly is this woman? Because there's been a lot of um, false narratives out there. So tell us, who is, who is she? <laughs> yeah, it's like, let's talk about the fake news of the woman at the well. <laughs> yes. Um, I used to think that she was like a salty mouth, scantily clad woman, like really, you know, getting men into her bed and tiring them to them and discarding and moving right. on and kind of. Because a woman could do that back then. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I really thought that. Right. And it wasn't until stacks of books later and some academic research of realizing, okay, so the reason someone in that kind of culture would be married five times and living with someone who's not their husband. Right. It's not because they were tiring of the men they were with. It's not like she was rich or famous. You know, you don't, you don't marry a serial adulterer. Right. Unless someone's like really rich or really famous. And she was neither. She would not be living in Shechem if that was the case. No. So here we have a woman who's had five relationships and many times divorce was for reasons of infertility. Yeah. And I know a lot of your listeners may have struggled through that, that, Um, She may have, it may have taken more than one union to realize that she was infertile. That could be part of her story. We don't know for sure. It could be. It's very likely. She also was probably a widow, maybe more than once. It happened often that women were married much earlier in age than the men. So she would have been much younger than whoever she married initially. And if they had passed the same thing. So here we have five relationships later where she may have been, suffering through infertility or widowhood or being discarded or being marginalized or even oppressed maybe could be a part of her story and likely a part of her story. Now she's older in age and can't produce an heir, which is really the only thing that makes her valuable in her society at the time. And she's living with a man as a concubine. And the reason that happened was not because he had a girl on the side. She probably persuaded a good man in her city to take her on as a dependent financially. And so here we have the woman at the well who's just had a really hard life. She's had to be in all of these relationships to literally survive. And some of us know what it's like to make hard decisions, to do to things we wouldn't otherwise do. And we look back and we're like, I had to do some of this stuff to get through. And, and Jesus knows that. So he has a conversation with her about her life. I don't think he's wagging her, his finger at her, right. Kelly. I think he's, I think he's saying, I know what you've had to live through. I mean, I actually know. Yeah. And I think he wants her to recognize her need. And then he meets it by saying he's the living water. She doesn't even need to come to this well anymore when it comes to her spiritual life, that God's going to meet all of her needs richly in him and Jesus through his presence in her life. And it'll be ongoing. And um, she may have to live in that concubine situation forever. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen, but Jesus is going to meet her needs. She's not going to be thirsty anymore. Um, And then we see this woman at the well. She's, she's brilliant. She was probably a 
um, a theological thinker at the very least. She was anticipating Messiah. John makes it clear that she was waiting for a Messiah. She knew all about what the Messiah would be like. He'd be the kind of person who could tell her everything she's ever done. Jesus just did that. And then Jesus discloses something to her that we don't see him do very often in the New Testament. It's very rare. It happens with Martha of Bethany. It happens with Peter. But here we have Jesus saying, I am. Like the person you're waiting on, that savior of the world, it me. And she believes him, which is so crazy that she was positioned and primed um, to believe, which had been a radical change in her life as a Samaritan. It would have changed how she worshiped God, where she worshiped God, who she believed it to be Messiah. And she believes. And then she goes to her town with a very broken testimony. And she says this, could this be the Messiah? (laughs) I don't know. Could it? And they get saved, yeah. you know, and it's not just because of her testimony. They go to Jesus. He stays for a couple of days. They have their questions answered. They come back to her and say, we believe yeah. you're right. He's the savior of the world, which honestly is a risk for her. So if we know, if we kind of can assume where she's at, she has been taken in by a, a man um, to financially assist her. She learns all of this and it is a risk to go back because if she's laughed at, if she's seen as, you know, okay, you, you've, you've lost it. You're kind of crazy. It would have been really detrimental um, and devastating to her well-being and her life. You know, he, she could have easily, mm-hmm. once again, been discarded um, out of her living situation. So I think the risk and the passion and the confidence in who Jesus is, is really beautiful and so powerful mm-hmm. that she did. She persuaded the townspeople. Um, you know, there's a really cool thing that happens, Kelly, in their conversation. So she... He says, I want you to give me some water. And she's like, you don't have a bucket and the well's deep. How are you going to get water? Why, why are you going to share utensils with Samaritan? Like, don't you know, dude, like we Jews and Samaritans, all this religious animosity between us is ethnic hatred. Right. You should not be doing this. And then she asked Jesus a really important question. And we were just talking about Dinah and her dad, Jacob. So hear this question from the woman at the well to Jesus again, new and fresh. She says, are you greater than our father, Jacob? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the answer is yes. Jesus is greater than Jacob. Jacob there, he, he was after God and he did some great things for the kingdom. And yes, God chose him. And yet, yes. And he was fallible and he did these unthinkable things Mm -hmm. to his own daughter, you know, allowing her to suffer through that. Um, But here we have the redemption we've wanted since Genesis 34. Yeah. Are are you, is there a man unlike any other who will never victimize or silence or overlook a marginalized woman or man or child? And we should feel in her answer. We should feel in her question, the hope that all the history of her city and the way women have always been treated Mm -hmm. would be different. And Jesus says, he proves to her that he's going to be better than Jacob. And I think a lot of us need to hear that, that whoever Jacob represents in your life, a person, a place, that Jesus is better. Yeah, that's so good. That's powerful. Tell me a little bit, how is Jesus better than Jacob? How is he a better listener and a responder to the woman than Jacob was to his own daughter? I love that Jesus is sitting. That's the posture he chooses when this woman comes upon a stranger waiting for her to well alone. It could have been a very intimidating situation for her. Uh, confusing for sure. And Jesus chooses a posture that's um, diffuses any of that concern potentially. I love that about him. I love that in his conversation with her, he asks her to tell her story. He already knows it though. Mm-hmm. And I think we need that permission and to be reminded that Jesus loves having a conversation with us, even when he knows exactly what we're going to say. Yeah. Um, he says to her twice, what you have said is true. What you have said is true. So he is doing some active listening that we know is so disarming and so important in building trust. And so it's his posture. It's the way he listens. It's his active listening. It's, it's, it's his shame devoid of shame questions, questions that have no shame attached to it, right? Questions to talk about hard things. He's not assigning blame on her when he says you've been married five times and you're married to six. He's saying, I know what you've done to survive. I know life has been really hard. Mm -hmm. And I think then 
having a theological conversation with her and trusting her with truth is a really redemptive way um, that he shows how much better he is than Jacob. And it's not just the long conversation. It's the longest in the book of John. It's like the word count Jesus used with the woman at the well proves that you and I are are worth a sit down face-to-face conversation with our savior about the hardest things in our life that he, even if we've made a mess of our life or our life is a mess, he's going to give us truth and we're supposed to steward it. And so I think he's better than Jacob because he, he commissions her with truth and he allows her to represent him and the gospel, even though her life wasn't all together. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that. I love that you said, you know, he validates her story. He validates and says, I do believe you. You know, I think of Dinah that she never got the opportunity to hear her father say, I believe you. And it was wrong. Mm -hmm. I'm really sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, And Mm -hmm. building that, like you said, building a relationship not just an encounter, but a relationship with her. And I also love mm-hmm. thinking about, you know, this, the centuries of, of Christianity and the, and the bodies that have gone into producing our Bible and text found it so vital and so important to include this encounter of Jesus and these words of Jesus to pass on. And it's just a powerful moment in scripture. And I, I really saw it in new ways reading your book. Um, I just, I think it's really beautiful. Thank you. It was a joy to write. As you can tell, I get fired up about it. I mean, this woman has really come to life, the woman at the well, and, um, she's nameless. So when you and I get to glory, the first thing I'm going to be like, where is the woman? Right. What is right. her first and last? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, I want to have a conversation with her. Oh, a long one, a long one. I think it's great. Um, you know, one of the things I loved about, um, reading John four, um, and it might've just been the day that I was reading that scripture, but there's this phrase like Jesus being tired by his journey came to the well. And I just thought so often anybody, even Jesus, can know our exhaustion of our in-between place, can relate to, you know, the woman's exhaustion of where her life had taken her. And in spite of that, took the posture of sitting, took the posture of, of communicating and welcoming in this woman to a conversation. And I really loved that. I kind of love the glimpses of humanity that we get with Jesus um, because mm-hmm. it is so relatable to how we feel. And it was, it was, a, it was a reminder to me to, even in, in exhaustion, you know, tired out by this journey, we can still meet Jesus. And he'll take mm-hmm. us as we are. We don't have to be full mm-hmm. of energy and excitement. Sometimes we just need to come exhausted and tired. And we can have an encounter and continue to build a relationship with Jesus that can bring new life, can bring the wellspring of, of newness in our spirits and be refreshed in that moment. Um, so good. I just love that phrase, tired by his journey. It's like, yes, Jesus. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's so great. He's so great. It is really, really good. Um, you encourage the readers that we have an incredible legacy in this woman. And I love that you say we have a drop your jug, run like a girl, tell all the people who uh, he told you all the things kind of legacy. And I love that. <laughs> I kind of feel like that needs to be a t-shirt. It would be a long t-shirt, but I think it would be really good. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, if you were to encourage people, what, what would the encouragement be for, for listeners today that are in this in-between place? Gosh, there's so many, but I, I want to focus in on what you just mentioned, that she, the woman at the well, after being entrusted with this theological truth, believing that Jesus is who he says he is, and carrying that message to her city, she drops her water jug and she starts sprinting towards people who she knew would likely not believe her, didn't trust her. She didn't have a good reputation. She didn't have any social standing. You know, she was not a credible witness. And still... And, and, you know, she didn't pause Kelly and take time out to go to seminary for a little bit. And she didn't pause and say, I'm going to find a way to live not being a concubine or I'm going to find, you know, her life hadn't changed in that very moment 
other than a relationship with Jesus. And yet God still uses her. So I, I want every woman actually to go to seminary. I want everyone to do a timeout and see how they can let the spirit of God rebuild their life. Those are important. I just want you to know that you don't have to have it all together to move forward in your calling. And that's what we see in her story. She should embody that hope we should all have. God can use me no matter what. That doesn't mean we excuse sin or we don't work on ourselves or we don't pursue Jesus in the scriptures. None of that. What it means is that we need to drop our water jug. And maybe that water jug for us represents a distraction, a sin pattern, a resistance to God's calling, whatever it may be. Maybe just as simple as a distraction, you know, something that you put a lot of attention on that isn't about God's kingdom. Drop it the way she did. Drop your water jug. Run like a girl who may not even be believed. Tell all of the people that Jesus has changed your life. You can do it in a broken way like she does. Could this be the Messiah? Was right. her testimony. You know, it wasn't like a five point Romans road, draw through a track. Like, all those are beautiful. I utilize those when I share the gospel. So I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying she didn't do that. Yeah. She dropped the water jug. So she dropped her distractions. She ran at full speed to tell people about how Jesus had changed her life. And before she had gotten her life together, if you will, I'm doing air quotes with together. And so we don't have to have it all together before we move forward in confidence in our calling. And that's what I would encourage people to do. And knowing no one has it together and no one will ever have it together. Like, let's just take that pressure off. You will never have it all together. You know, I'm talking to myself, you will never have it all together. Um, So I think that's beautiful. I really do. And I think that's an amazing legacy for every woman to take with her. Um, Before I let you go, I want to um, just give you an opportunity to tell us about the incredible ministry that you started, Polished. Um, What is Polished and who can be involved? Tell me all about it. Yeah. 13 years ago, I was working full-time, loving my career and going to seminary part-time and noticed a need in my personal life. I wanted a place where I could talk about work and faith. And I wanted to do it with other women. I wanted to do it with my Christian friends who were also working. And then I, I wanted it to be a I wanted to have kind of the kind of conversations where you can invite your friends who don't know Jesus yet or feel maybe over-churched, de-churched, under-churched, however you want to say that. And I wanted to talk about faith and work, how my faith impacts my job. And so 13 years ago, I co-founded the organization called The Polished Network. You can find us at polishedonline.org or check out my Instagram. You'll, you'll be quickly linked over there. Um, but The Polished Network is for working women. We gather women online and in person through chapter events and online events and online resources through our network to have conversations about our faith and our work and to do it in authentic community. And I think that's what working women experience the Polish network. If you, you can tune in from anywhere, we have monthly webinars that are so amazing with some of the most classy and godly professional women you've ever met talking about things that really matter in a working woman's life, whether you are married or single, didn't matter your age, your ethnicity, your industry, your title. If you are working, you will feel such a home in the Polish Network. I've made my best friends in the organization and grown tremendously in my faith. But we want to create space for working women to talk about Jesus and to talk about work. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. We encourage everybody to go and check that out. Thank you so much for being here today. Um, I would encourage all of our listeners, go get the in-between place. Read it. You will be so encouraged, um, so challenged. So thank you, Kat, so much for being here today. Absolutely. So much fun. We got to connect. Yeah, absolutely. We will. I want to once again thank Kat for being on the show, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. I'll see you next time.